0: Hey everyone! This episode was recorded way back on the 11th of August 2020. We initially intended to tie it into the release of The Kingsman back when that film was set to come out in September. Of course, as was the case with pretty much every film release from 2020, The Kingsman was delayed. Until... now? At the time of recording this intro, it's set for a February release, and hopefully it won't be delayed again because I can't be bothered recording another one of these. Anyway, that's just a bit of context to explain things such as why we are talking about how hot the weather is, not to mention allusions to things like a Donald Trump White House. Enjoy! Hello! Welcome to Diminishing Returns. Uh, If that introductory greeting sounded a bit forced, it's because we are recording basically inside the fart of the sun. It's (laughs) not like the hottest day I can recall in a while. It's unbearable, and uh, we've all had to close our windows and turn any fans off so that you don't get any annoying noise in the background of this recording.
1: I was going to say, Sol, you're not even in London. You should be feeling bad for me and Alan. Yeah. Why, is it hotter in London? Yeah. Of course it's hotter in London. of the pollution. Yeah. And it's closer to the equator. <laughs>
2: is it? Well, technically, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so, that's a little disclaimer up front, because I have a feeling it's going to impact this record. I feel like our... I feel like my head's not where it needs to be to record. I feel like Anna, Alan's coming in very low energy. Calvin's really cranky. He's like really irritable. Uh, <laughs> they are, of course, the 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 three of us. Oh god, see what I mean? They are the two people I am recording with today. I'm Sol, and I just told you, Alan, <laughs> Hello. Calvin. That'll edit into something workable. Say hi, guys. Hello, I'm Calvin. <laughs> And the reason we're all getting together on this this ridiculous day (laughs) is to discuss the sequel to 2014's Kingsman: (laughs) The Secret Service. Why? Uh, Which which was uh, what was that film called? It was called uh, Kingsman: The Golden Circle. The Gold Circle. The Golden Golden
2: Circle. Circle.
0: Yeah. So we're we're God, I'm really struggling with this. Can you tell? We're discussing <laughs> 2017's sequel to 2014's Kingsman film, so we are discussing Kingsman: The gold Circle. Golden, Golden
1: Circle.
0: <laughs> the Golden Circle.
2: Yeah, and we we covered the original Kingsman film at some point. Um, we did, I think, back when
0: uh, back when this film was coming out.
2: We covered the original film leading up to that. We did. We have covered this sequel in one of our review uh, of the year episodes, but I recall at the time Saul had not seen it. Yes. Um, so we've got that to look forward to. But yeah, so we revisited it. I had to rewatch it. I resent that greatly. Oof. And I'm going to take it out on all of you tonight. Oh, goodness. <laughs>
0: oh, sorry. I was wrong when I said Calvin was irritable. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But yes, you can uh, listen to our uh, other episode on Kingdom on the original film.
0: Yes, uh, number 68. Kingsman's Secret Service from uh, September 2017.
1: If I could just harken back to that, because uh, my opinion of that film has changed quite significantly, actually, since we last recorded. Basically, how our last record went was I was sort of saying, oh, it's fun and nonsense and fun and stuff. And Alan was like, no, it's for these social and economic reasons, it is not good. (laughs) Uh, It's pushing these agendas. Are we talking
0: about... Kingsman 1 or Kingsman 2 here? Kingsman 1, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember taking issue with the the fact that Matthew Vaughn has got such clearly underlying right-wing tendencies mm. that are just, like, just bubbling under the surface of his films. And, mm. and it just slightly rubs me the wrong way when I'm watching his films. Mm. Although I do superficially quite enjoy them.
1: Mm. I have Well yes no I I I used to be like that with Kingsman but ever since cuz I I rewatched it for a video review that I did for my YouTube channel cuz obviously the bond connections and what and I went back and listened to What's that, that YouTube previ- channel called Calvin It's it's the Calvin Dyson YouTube channel. Just well it's just <laughs> Calvin Dyson.
2: So if I search for Calvin D Y S O N I'll find it on.
1: I thought it was Calvin Dyson
0: 007 reviewer or something like that. Have you changed it again? Yes, it's just Calvin Dyson now. Are you planning to branch out from Bond? Is that what this is?
1: No, 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 no. It was uh, just everything else was clunky. (laughs) I just thought... Anyway. What
2: about Calvin Investigates? That's quite snappy. (laughs) It's like Hetty Wainthrop.
0: What about... What about... (laughs) Calvin... Investigates?
1: (laughs) Oh. That's quite good, actually. (laughs)
2: No, it's not. Because that's not what you do (laughs) on the channel.
1: (laughs) Maybe I should.
0: Start investigating things. What about, what about... Calvin the middle? (laughs) (laughs) Calvin the thick of it. (laughs) Um, I I have pulled up the um, uh, Kingsman episode uh, we have here just to look at what ratings we gave that film back when we covered it. So, Kingsman 1, Kingsman the Secret Service... Uh, Alan and myself uh, both gave a 7 out of 10 score. Calvin, mm-hmm. you gave it an 8 out of 10 back
1: in. Shit, really? You
2: gave it 7? Yeah. The first one I was okay with, the second one I hated. We'll get on to that. Oh, later. right. Oh. But no, the first one I was okay with, it was fine bit of entertainment. But,
0: yeah, I, I, but I think Alan and I were both roughly aligned with that in that we thought it was solid, good fun, in a kind of superficial nonsense way, plenty of flaws. And a lot of the, um, like like you hinted at just now, a lot of the kind of underlying, you know, subtexts perhaps didn't mm. quite sit well with us. I think that was more of an issue for me, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it probably was. But Alan was a bit more uh, vocal about it on the podcast. So when I was listening <laughs> back to it, I was sort of like, oh, actually, yeah, these are all really uh, prudent points. I can't remember I think what I think Alan took
0: I... more issue with logical problems, actually, from what I remember. Things like... Um, what was it? It was something to do with that woman uh, putting her baby in the other room, and then. Oh what was yeah, because I remember Alan and I both attempted an improv sequence. In it, <laughs> when it, it didn't go. <laughs> it didn't go well enough to get left in the edit.
2: <laughs> what were we were talking about the what? What would that phone call be like? Where she's <laughs> yeah. She's locked the baby yeah. in the bathroom.
0: Hello, emergency services. I, I hear that some villain is uh, putting out some mind control that's making everyone evil and like violent. Right, well, what you need to do is lock your baby in the bathroom. <laughs> it was something like that. I don't quite remember. It was a logical problem we had with the first film, but I'm afraid I didn't re-watch the first
1: film for this no, episode. I, I only watched the second one. The
2: first one so, look, Calvin, you have recently... Re-reviewed re- your review?
1: Yes, uh, well, I would have gone down to either a five or six out of ten. Actually, um, wow. the, the, the so kind of more you? insidious. It, it was the first time I should point out watching it sort of by myself and sober, and that <laughs> makes a big difference. And especially after hearing, listening back to our podcast and hearing your guys' um, take on it, it, a lot of the stuff did become very apparent. And I also had recently, uh, well, after the Kingsman, but I've also recently seen another of Matthew Vaughan's films, Layer Cake, which I also. Uh thought had underlying issues Protobond. with it um <laughs> uh but yeah and, and i think it is just the whole kind of you've got mark miller who's your scottish socialist anarchist and matthew Vaughan who seems to be this is very uh, uh,
0: mark miller i i thought mark miller was bordering on fascist tendencies am i confusing him with someone else well I you know batman writing was quite you're fascist- thinking
2: of benito mussolini That's
1: that's (laughs) very similar people views that Matthew Vaughn has this very sort of pro-establishment anti-working class kind of vibe to his stuff Um, and I I kind of find that quite unpalatable in this uh, current climate and you hate the working class so that's really saying something (laughs) but but isn't that I mean doesn't that gel
0: very well with
1: James Bond
0: and and the whole Bond thing
1: I don't know if it really... I think Bond tends to stay away from those sorts of issues. It it doesn't address them, I would say. Um, You're right. Kingsman
0: really does throw it in your face. It makes a huge thing about the importance of being a gentleman, whatever that means. I think that really rubbed Alan and myself the wrong way. We didn't like any of that, the idea of what being a gentleman is and, and that being defined as something to aspire towards above other things when it basically means that you drink the correct whiskey and you beat people up in the correct fashion it (laughs) it was all just very um I, i remember there being something that i didn't like at all which was the the uh the final moments where he's going to rescue the princess as well and and she's like <laughs> scared and then he's sort of like I'll let you out uh, for a kiss and she's like mm. and I remember y- you saying oh it's just a bit of fun and me being a bit mm, like well <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't quite sit well with me that whole I, I you know I, I get I get what it's going for but that followed by uh, the anal sex reward <laughs> you know, and just felt a bit kind of um and you know, and I bring that up not just to refresh people's memory, but also because she is a central character in the sequel. Mm. Um, yeah. So, have you have you rewatched the second film since rewatching the first one?
1: Uh, I only watched it for the second time in preparation for this podcast a couple of nights ago.
0: Yeah. And just out of interest, because you you said there that basically it's the first time you've watched the film sober. And that made a big difference.
2: How are those AA meetings going? Are you you, you able to do it with the social distancing and everything? (laughs) Well, I think
0: we've just solved it, Alan, because we often ask what it is you get out of James Bond. And I was just wondering if you've ever watched any of those sober as
1: well. I have! It's not, well, I mean, I should point out, I watched the second one with my partner, uh, and I had some whiskeys, because I, obviously, there's a lot of whiskey talk in this.
0: Hearing the word whiskey, you knew you wouldn't be able to yeah, I <laughs> get through a film myself. where they talk about whiskey without drinking Just... one, of course.
2: You shouldn't watch Whiskey Galore, Calvin, you'd probably die.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that film. <laughs> uh... I, j- just quickly, just before we get into the film, I just had to look up Mark Miller's political views. And yes, indeed, he describes himself as uh, being to the left of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> uh, oh, really?
0: Oh, well, I, I, I must be confusing him. I I know that um, there is a Batman writer held in very high regard who is known for like creating really questionably like, r- racist and quite uh, fascistic... <laughs>
1: content and i i'm gonna have to look up who that is he- well it might be him because it in in that same tweet he says uh but as a writer i'm interested in people who have a different worldview to my own so mm. maybe he is deliberately mm. provocative in that way but it, I, I i either way i don't like him and uh matthew vaughn they seem like pretty, pretty horrible people actually yeah matthew vaughn
0: and I, I i say this I'm I'm taking a huge swing here into the you know stab in the dark. I don't know the man obviously. He's definitely I've never children. even so much <laughs> <laughs> steps on mice for fun. <laughs> um, I've never so much as you know watched him do an interview or anything like that. But just going off of his films, and I think I've seen I think I've seen all but one of his films at this point. I know I've seen Stardust, Kick Ass. X-Men, First Class, Kingsman 1 and 2, Layer Cake. Are there any others? No, that's it. Mm, you've seen every film. Okay, okay. so I've seen all of his films looking at this. um, You just get the sense that he is the classic... Your, your classic thing where someone feels like they're a self-made man and they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and therefore everyone else should be able to do what they do through a bit of hard work, but... Oh, oh, yeah, completely.
1: No, that, totally. that's the
0: impression I get of him and his politics based on his films. That he he doesn't he doesn't check his privilege. I suppose is what I'm trying to say.
2: <laughs> Can I just read you from the Wikipedia page of Matthew Vaughn? Go on. <laughs> it says, uh, okay, until 2002, he thought he was the child of a relationship between his mother and American actor Robert Vaughn. Mm, Fair enough. Yes. But a paternity investigation revealed that Robert Vaughan was not his father. His actual biological father is George Albert Harley de Vere Drummond, an English aristocrat <laughs> who was a godson of King George VI. So I don't know where you're getting this privileged background idea from. No. <laughs>
1: He is also, like, I listened to his audio commentary for Layer Cake and he just comes across as very, smoke- at one point he uh, starts bitching about uh, people not understanding the f- the narrative or whatever and he's sort of like, oh, if people don't understand this, they should be watching Snow White and Seven Dwarves because this is all perfectly clear. We've crossed every T with dotted every I and uh, it's just perfect and that's, it, that's his attitude to it. He made this fantastic thing and if you don't like it, that's because you're an idiot and <laughs> and, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I I don't like him.
2: <laughs> Do you know he's married to Claudia Schiff
1: Yeah. Is he really? Wow. Yeah. Do you want to uh read as the names of his children? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at I just looked at the names of his children. Let's not pick on the children. It's not their fault, but you know. <laughs>
0: I, I would like to recant what I was saying, slagging off Mark Miller. I, I've done enough Googling to realise what my mistake is. I'm sure plenty of listeners have been pulling their hair out and screaming as they <laughs> listen to this. There's a, there's a very well-known comic book artist who who's done a lot of Batman stuff called Frank Miller. And I oh, think yeah, I've conflated yeah. him with Mark Miller uh, due to the similar surname. So, sorry, Mark. Hmm. I, uh, I I take it back. You You probably... You socialist scum. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> Sorry, guys. Just before we move on, I'm just gonna drop. I-, I keep dropping out of the conversation, uh, so I'm just gonna come out and then come back in again. All right. All
0: right. Right now we've uh, we've got the room just to ourselves that Calvin. Cameron, yeah, yeah, yeah. For what? A f- <laughs> fucking dickhead. Bet he's fucking put on a load stupid. of weight in
2: the lockdown. Anyway. Uh, he,
0: he, oh, those stupid fucking shirts. <laughs> collar, collars up round his
2: neck. He's, like a stupid he's, got fucking... his, he's got his uni hair on now. It's so a lockdown. He's grown it out. He's got his Bieber fringe <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, back. Uh, and, and the uh no class as well. No class. <laughs> oh, God. This is hard to sustain. I was hoping he'd come back in in the middle of
2: it. And... <laughs> He's probably here already. He's just letting us burn ourselves out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he probably came in, heard what we were saying, and got so offended that he just left. <laughs> Jimmy Carr looking motherfucker.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, hello. Oh, hello. Sorry about oh, that. Sorry. Uh, we,
2: were, we were just talking about Matthew Vaughn. Uh, okay.
1: We just,
0: we were just, uh, we are just complimenting your appearance.
1: <laughs> My appearance. What? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah no. I think I think my phone is actually overheating. I've taken it off its charger because I think it was actually like the apps would general would genuinely I couldn't get back into Skype. I I've had that actually happen. I I remember driving one day in, in very hot
0: weather, and the phone was obviously right in the windscreen of the car. I was using it for the map, so it was heating up in the glass of the car, and it. A little message actually popped up saying, "Like I'm too hot." Fo- f- yeah. I've never seen it any other time, but a little message popped up saying, "Like phone entering emergency shutdown, like cooling protocol." Oh <laughs> <God>. <laughs> like I was like what the player. fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we don't like Matthew Vaughan, Mark Millar. We're 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 less sure of but he might he might be he might be a bell end, we don't know, he might be lovely.
2: But I, I just just to get back uh, onto the slagging off Matthew Vaughan thing, um <laughs> I think that Kingsman 2 is pure Matthew Vaughan. I think this is the most freedom he's had as a filmmaker and that's mm. why it's so terrible. I, I think really? Matthew Vaughan is a bad filmmaker and the more freedom he gets the 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 worse it is. Mm.
0: I think that Kingsman 2 was very interesting, um, because we, we've we just complained about his uh, personality. And <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I feel like a lot of Kingsman 2, which I only watched for the first time yesterday in preparation for this podcast, um, a lot of the film felt almost like an apology from him, almost like he'd kind of... I don't know, like taken on board certain criticisms about the first film and his stuff in general, or like
2: what?
0: Well, for example, I I feel like the Matthew Vaughn of the first film would never have made that they- he would have made a film where like drug users are evil and bad and all that, but like this film's clearly quite against anti-drug people. You know, it's it's against the war on drugs. And maybe that's just because Matthew Vaughn's a cokehead and he's not... Oh, he definitely is.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe not, maybe not. I'm saying this as a parody satire. (laughs) That's Calvin's Um, opinion. (laughs) Yeah, it's just my opinion. It felt to me like more of a
0: traditionally Hollywood, lefty, bleeding heart, liberal approach to something like drugs, where, oh, now the president who's trying to ban drugs is this evil, maniacal, cackling villain. Whereas the first film, it felt like the guy who made that film would have been on the, on the same side as the president, and you would have been asked to think, yeah, good on you, president. Good on you, Kingsman society, for killing everyone who takes drugs.
1: I don't know. I think this is where Matthew Vaughan's sort of personal politics kind of uh, get confusing, and that's why I, I don't mm. think that people on first watching, like, for example, the first Kingsman, like, I didn't really see all this stuff, and it is there if you look for it. And I think a part of him is kind of uh, libertarian, Quite, I think he is a, a, a true libertarian, actually. I think that's probably a better way to describe him. Um... And I think he probably does advocate sort of legalization of, you know, and uh, Emily uh, Watson's character does have that little speech about, like, oh, well, what about the, you know, functioning professionals and recreational, you know, whatever? Um, Yeah. They're certainly making the case for it. Yes.
0: (laughs) Although I must say, you know, we we, we sound like that was all we spoke about with the first Kingsman film, and it wasn't, because at the end of the day, uh, uh, a filmmaker's political views aren't the be-all and end-all. It's, you know, you can... Have completely opposing views to me, and and make a film really well, <laughs> and I'll I'll oh yeah yeah respect it if not enjoy it. Mm. Mm. And you know, and I think to an extent that's what I got from Kingsman, and I and I want to pick up what Alan was saying there that he thinks that Matthew Vaughn is a bad filmmaker because I I don't think that at all, but I do think he has very self indulgent and lazy tendencies. And mm. they are on full force in, in Kingsman two, mm. uh, because presumably he's had more people reining them in. Yeah. Um, you know, th- 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 there's one scene in particular in Kingsman two, um, which I suppose I'm going to dive straight into now, um, that really hammered that home for me. You know, Matthew Vaughn is known for these hugely elaborate dynamic action sequences, often set to a an upbeat soundtrack. There's one scene in particular in Kingsman 2 where they're fighting the bad guy in that sort of 1950s diner. It's practically like watching someone play a video game, because the, <laughs> the, the amount of CGI stitching between... The whole thing is put together as if it's one seamless take, but mm. it's so blatantly... Frankenstein together from about 500 different shots with CGI filling in the gaps that it just looks so fake. And he does the, this a lot. And, and and that and that isn't necess- yeah and and that's not necessarily a problem. You know I think there's a place for that kind of cool for the sake of cool stuff. But the problem when I was watching that shot and I really sat back and started analyzing it because it took me out of the film as it was happening, which isn't a good sign. The problem was You know, If you're doing one shot for the whole thing, it should feel organic. The camera movement should feel natural. Whereas with this, it was like, right, now I want to go to a long shot of this guy with his fist raised up, about to hit the other guy, so the camera's going to swing back over here to get back into place. And it was like, right, so you could have just cut to that shot, but you arbitrarily felt the need to move the camera
2: you've struck on something i particularly hate uh, about this film so Mm. because he does this all the time it's the same with the opening scene in the taxi uh, where they have a fight and it's just totally unnatural camera movements and Mm. you know this arbitrary oh let's put an upbeat song on the top of it because i've Mm. seen guardians of the galaxy it worked and it, it just really annoys me and it, it's obviously it's come from they did it in the first film with the scene where Colin Firth goes into the church thing and has a massive fight, yeah,
0: free bird, and it
2: kind of works there because you're focusing on this one person in the middle of a melee, and so to so have this kind of style,
0: yeah, and it's it's a big show stopping sequence in the film. I think you're allowed one of those in your mm. film, but this film has about four or five distinct moments where they are trying to recreate that magic. And it just doesn't—it doesn't quite work. And it, and the problem is, you know, I I I think some of those scenes are good fun, very dynamic and put together in an entertaining way. But it's it's this one in particular that struck me because it it went on far too long, so it, to the point that it did just become completely self-indulgent. And like I say, the camera movements weren't justified in that opening taxi sequence. Yeah, it's a bit over the top. It's a bit over shot and over edited, but. It's ultimately serving the story for the most part. You know, that scene is there for a reason. It's not too long and... It's right at the beginning. Okay it sets it. you up with a bit of yeah. action.
2: But I just didn't like the way it's shot. Yeah, most
0: of the shots are essentially... And movements are essentially justified by mm. what's happening. You know, I, I don't mind it if in this scene I'm complaining about... There's several times where, for example... Channing Tatum will, like, or whoever it is, will... I can't remember who's in that scene at that point. Someone has a whip. I'm guessing it's Channing Tatum, but it might be the other bad guy. it's
1: the other guy. It's Pedro Pascal.
0: All right, so Pedro Pascal, he'll grab his whip, and the camera will follow the tip of the whip as it throws out. And I'm okay with that, because you're following something naturally within the within the film you know it's like it makes sense that you want to see where that's going it's an organic movement but then there's other bits where the camera will just swing around to a different shot to set up a frame so that someone can run into it and that mm. is what i don't like because it feels completely Artificial and like like someone's running around with a camera and they've choreographed this scene and they know what's about to happen and it it just that's what I didn't like and I I know it's a very fine line that I'm kind of trying yeah. to make a distinction between. This is
2: a part of what I really don't like about well I would say probably Matthew Vaughn's style in general is the artifice. Everything is so fake. Everything is fake and like even in this there's a in the taxi fight scene you know. Puts his elbow through a window and the window smash is fake. They mean, like, they can't even <laughs> yeah. bother to do a fake glass window. And I just don't. Uh, and then, you know, they're seeing a car chase drifting. It's like, well, that looks fake. You've got Julianne Moore on a set that looks like it's probably about 30% uh, real physical set. And I, I just, it, it's it's not just that it's all fake, it's that it's so obvious. Like, if you're going to do it, do it well. I always think that this is a way of them
1: working around some kind of limited budget for some reason I always think of these as being kind of like oh they're in like sort of like the 50 million bracket but these are sort of around the 100 million dollar budget marks and I'm surprised at how much the because fair enough like if if they had a significantly lower budget I would be more forgiving of these things because Mm. they do look it looks like a video game cutscene in so many things and the lack of doing anything for real it does just take you out of it and particularly in the taxi sequence because that Opening the film, it just, uh, yeah, and the camera's doing things that the camera could never do, as soul, uh quite uh, well articulated, I think. It's, um, yeah, I, I never believe any of the action sequences. Mm.
0: And it's a shame because it makes me hark for a scene where they put something together like that for real. Mm. And, like, I, I know it wouldn't be that elaborate, but, like, how about you go away and you spend that money on you know, making the most insanely elaborate action sequence that shot for real that you can do. Mm. Because it's so much more impressive. It, it actually reminded me of, the, there's a scene in Zombieland 2, of all films, that's a very similar, we're just gonna stop the film for five minutes and do a huge one-take action sequence. But they did film it all for real and then mm. stitch the the camera shots together digitally. But, you know, it's it's... And and the end result is something. The basic, I'm I'm talking about it because it it just reminded me of it watching this film. Um, you know, a sequel with a weird action one take scene in the middle that's stitched together. But it, it was just so much more impressive in this pretty modest, uh, film, *Zombieland* mm. two, in terms of action, um, purely because. You could tell it was just someone running around with a camera and like you know a well choreographed thing where the actors all had to run around and hit their mark at the right time Mm. i i I don't know it just they're, they're going for something so much more extreme and that's admirable except they can't do it for real and therefore it just becomes pointless you know tom cruise is going into space for real for a New movie he's making, and that—that's what we should all strive, strive for. We should all strive to be Tom Cruise, hanging off the side of of skyscrapers for real. Mm-hmm. We should not be just thinking like Matthew Vaughan, Oh, we can just fucking do a CGI map of mm-hmm. of Colin Firth because I saw they did it for The Matrix Reloaded, and that worked fine. It, mm. It's it's just upsetting. But on on the other side of that you know it feels like a wasted opportunity because these are at the heart of them such fun engaging action sequences i think for the most part that you know were they just put together a bit more practically with a bit more thought put into them Mm. i'd be all over them i'd think wow this is amazing
2: hmm shall we crack the plot a little bit
0: should we should we quickly recap the first film even because that kind of leads directly into it?
1: Yeah, because even this film doesn't really do much effort to uh, sort of recap. I mean, in the in the first scene, <laughs> they do start with a little Terminator esque
0: scan of a character saying like, "Oh, it's this guy from the previous film who was this character." And I was I remember watching it going, "Oh, thank God they did that because I would
1: never in a million years have remembered <laughs> this." I was gonna <laughs> ask, actor from the first film. <laughs> I was going to ask if you did because, like, this is not like a star returning. Like, this is a, a working actor, I guess. Um, I don't even know who it who what, what his Edward name is. Holcroft. Edward, Edward Holcroft. Edward yeah. Holcroft. Okay. Let Playing me tell you though,
2: I think he comes out of this film better than anyone else because his character mm, is mm. so different to the one he plays in the first film. Even though it's the same character, looks completely different, and you know, in, in behavior is a bit hard and more rough and tumble. So I think, in terms of him as an actor, like character mm-hmm. diversity, mm-hmm. I think it's oh, brilliant yeah. for him. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, I'll echo that. Yeah, I I kind of wish there'd been a bit more, a bit more of seeing him going from his place in the first film to this, because I don't know, it it just it didn't feel like the natural next step. I can totally buy that that guy would go and become a baddie, but. I just felt like seeing a bit of that evolution might have been nice.
2: Although we, it, it is implied that he dies in the first film, so they have to kind of fumble their way mm. out
1: of that. Well, it's not even the most egregious example of a deceased character <laughs> uh, coming back. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the, I, initially,
0: I assumed he was dead in the first film, and I had remembered that correctly. Because I remembered him dying, pretty much, so... Yeah, I I initially assumed, oh, he died in the first film and they've brought him back with robot stuff. But then it turns out it's just his arm is now a robot arm. Yeah, because
1: the chip that was in his neck that would have blown up his head was dislodged by Eggsy's electric ring thing and apparently it went, Mm. moved down and then it blew off his
2: arm and his vocal cords. But what? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) like if you yeah if you short circuit the thing and it's damaged it so it doesn't work I can go with that but it moved down to his shoulder what
0: (laughs) but but not only that but why wouldn't you just write it that he got killed and then a villain swept in and like six million dollar manned him and turn him into a robot <laughs> that she could use as a bad guy
1: okay we're kind of circling around one of the major points that i want to bring up and i guess we might as well talk about it now it's the fact that this film is so intent on bringing back characters from the first one calling back to the first one it's a real continuation of what was in that first film and i'm Kind of baffled as to why, especially because the model seems to be like, "Oh, we're gonna do, you know, James Bond sort of stuff." Where obviously, I completely agree. Yeah, Yeah, they're largely self-contained adventures, and here it's they 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 really go to shoehorning in like to the fact that Exe is now dating a princess, which yeah, from, is who was a throwaway
0: gag at the yeah. end of the last film was he saved the princess and suddenly this film is doing this very weird meta deconstruction of James Bond by looking at James Bond if he were in a committed relationship. And I don't dislike that, but I will say that's something pr- surely that you say for Kingsman 5. You know, that's <laughs> not that's not what you do on your second outing. It's It's very weird. To say that these films are pitched as a kind of James Bond pastiche... Mm. But then when I was watching this, I thought, well, maybe maybe that's not what it's meant to be. Maybe Matthew Vaughn's just trying to make his own spy movies. Mm-hmm. But then it absolutely is what it's supposed to be. They have a conversation about their favourite James Bond tropes in the first film over mm. dinner. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh... it, it just, I don't know, it's really weird. But I mean, I, I have to say, and I suppose this is a point in favour of what Alan was saying, that Matthew Vaughn isn't perhaps the best director in the world... I repeatedly found myself questioning whether or not this film and the previous film are supposed to be comedies. Because Mm. Mm. they play, to me, as full-on comedy movies, like, bordering on Austin Powers-level spoof, to be honest. This
2: one feels Mm. like a parody of the first film. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I could also... Like, they play in such a way that I could pretty much believe Matthew Vaughn just thinks it's all cool (laughs) do you know what I mean (laughs) like it's not actually meant to be a joke it's meant to be deadly serious and I'm just sat there laughing at it there's obviously gags written into the script but you know I'm talking about robot dogs and uh uh the fact this guy has a robot arm and and the fact that Julianne Moore is playing this baffling villain who turns people into mincemeat and like that all plays as comedy to me Mm. and i thought well maybe that's meant to be serious i don't really know is colin firth getting his head blown off and then coming back from the dead is that supposed to be funny because it's only it plays like in south park when um when they kill Bill Gates in an episode by having him get shot in the head, but then they decided five seasons later they wanted to have him come back, so they just have him have a bandage around his head (laughs) with like a a bit of blood on it when he
1: appears. It's like, it's that level of... Yeah. It would honestly not surprise me at all if we talked about how Matthew Vaughan, obviously, this is, he has more creative control over this than probably any other film that he's done. Mm. The first one was a big success, and they probably did just say to him, right, just do what you want. And it wouldn't surprise me if you, Edward Holcroft and him just really got along, and the actress that played the Swedish princess, I think he just kind of wanted to get the band back together to do it again. Um, Colin Firth, for example... And uh, there was no one there, sort of stopping him. Trying to get Colin Firth back into it,
2: I understand the logic of that because yeah, he's a big he star. He's a, a big huge part of. The first part
0: of-, of- what made the first foot the first, it's much like Men in Black 2, which we've spoken about on this podcast before, where Men in Black lives and dies on, arguably, Men in Black lives and dies on the chemistry between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones Mm. and their dynamic. Mm. And I would say that Kingsman, the Secret Service, arguably lives and dies on the chemistry between Taron Egerton and Colin Firth and their dynamic. So I completely understand this this approach of we've got to get him back
2: do you really want to rely on taron edgerton for your film <laughs> good lord oh he's <laughs> all right what's wrong with him uh... can we talk about taron edgerton because i think he's not that good <laughs> i'm uh, not saying I... he's totally shit i just think he's a bit shit
0: yeah i look i i i kind of get where you're coming from i i'm gonna agree with you but i'm gonna dial it back to be like 60% as harsh as you're making it sound <laughs> <laughs> it's I think, I completely agree, he got really lucky being cast in the first Kingsman in a role that uh, was perhaps not very difficult, but they obviously thought we need someone who, who can kind of get away with playing a quote-unquote chav, is able to talk properly at the end of the film when we need him to be a bit more suave. So we can't, just, we can't just get an actual kid off the street and uh, <laughs> expect Tergoose. them to be able to do that. <laughs> uh, Thomas Turgoose, of course, another friend of the show now. He's, he <laughs> was on our This Is England episode. He's in this film as one of uh, Eggsy's mates who, who takes a load of drugs, uh, <laughs> does a bit of dancing... And
1: then he's all right at the end. This is the thing about Taron Egerton. Just to get my uh, two cents on on him, in my because my opinion of him has changed over time. Because I I think he's quite good. In I saw him in Eddie the Eagle. He was quite funny in that. Mm. Um, I I don't lose him in a role which is saying something because when I first saw him in the first Kingsman I came out of that being like oh wow I really like that they've just found this like young working class actor like they never do yeah. this anymore they're always Rada trained blah de blah Cumberbatchy Hiddlestony, whatever <laughs> and I was like oh I'm so glad that we're going back to this you know getting the Michael Kane out of the you know the West End slums and he's gonna mm. be a big star and then obviously look him up and he's like oh no he is just plummy voiced uh, Oxbridge turn.
2: I saw him in the, in the- beginning of this film right and he's he's in the full suit and all that and he's looking like and i think he can't pull that off he doesn't pull off the suave uh well-dressed gentleman he doesn't look the part he doesn't he and then when he plays a chav i think well he doesn't really play that very well either like i was I, gonna say yeah
0: <laughs> now he's dialing the accent back a bit and it's not full devo it's kind of a bit more just like from the streets it's a bit more ali g in this than devo it just didn't play, and I guess that's maybe because I know it's not real now, but I But I, I think Taryn Edgerton would be great on the stage. I think that's perhaps what's gone wrong. Because mm. the, he's definitely got a charm. I like him, and I, I enjoy the stuff I've seen him in. And Rocket Man, I think he's great in, but I agree it's it, it's not it's it's great in that he's kind of selling this role as Elton John, despite not looking anything like Elton John, and he's kind of able to slip in and out of the singing and the acting and do all that very well. You know, I I think if he'd got that Oscar nomination that he was sort of in the zeitgeist for off of Rocketman, his career might sustain. But um, I think you're right, he might go away a bit now. And I wouldn't be surprised if he finds a comfortable home on the West End, to be honest. I think that that probably yeah
2: i think he's a capable actor but i do not think he's a leading man top quality he reminds me of um joel edgerton you know <laughs> who kind of had a couple of things and then just like uh disappeared. i think he's a director now isn't he more than anything mm. but that's what he makes me think of just a sort of very bland not nothing special kind of actor
0: yeah, and I mean, should we should we talk about the cast in this film beyond those two? Because we've we've covered Taron there, we've covered uh, Edward Holcroft a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like Mark Strong was a was a welcome, very welcome guy to bring back from the first film, and I I felt mm. like he must have been practicing that accent because it wasn't nearly as dreadful as in the first film. When I I seem to remember it being very ropey. Mm. Is that just my memory failing me, or did uh, we I don't make think fun of his bad. dodgy accent?
1: I don't think he was that bad um I thought they bumped him off a bit too soon I know we're kind of going all over with the plot here um maybe this is just gonna be one of those shows where we don't really go through the plot in sort of a narrative order but um because I do just while we're just talking about him like, I really like that character and um I really like the moment where he sort of sacrifices himself on the mine and stuff um after he's got all suited up and everything so he obviously blows up um yeah. Originally, he was going to come back in the wedding at the end with like robot legs. And he was gonna survive until the next film, which I think would have been pretty terrible because they've already kind of removed any... With this whole Colin Firth can be shot in the head and revived and they do another... You know, they revive someone else in the film. I, I have no stakes, no kind of life or death peril. That is
0: exactly what I mean about not knowing to what extent this film is meant to be funny and isn't. Because I, I as I watched that scene... I already thought, well, you've had you've had two characters die and be brought back to life in this film already, so I already do not care about anyone <laughs> dying. And yeah. I don't buy that this is the end of Mark Strong anymore. So I almost wish that they had just brought him back immediately, because I would have been like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Which is
2: a problem when you're using that scene to create the closest we get in the film to emotion, that, exactly. that yeah. with, him, with him making this ultimate sacrifice and they kind of really get... Um, emotional about it.
1: I believe that they filmed it but test audiences didn't like it pres- presumably because you do come out of it like oh well that death meant nothing and, um, and I think Alan I think you were about to touch on this earlier on about Colin Firth's character because yeah. the whole point why he dies in the first film is that the mentor dies so that the you know the trainee the apprentice has to go on and save oh, the day. Difficult. Yes exactly and we completely just undo that by just oh no just bringing back and I understand the temptation because Harry and Eggsy, that relationship is, is what made the fir- is part of what made the first one good, mm. and but but they've just got a complete paralysis of they don't know what to do without that, and um, yeah,
0: and, but the first film, you know, had balls to kill Colin Firth off as early into the film as it did, and mm. leave him dead until the end of the film. So it's a surprisingly limp <laughs> attempt at a sequel to 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 not try and go it alone without him and they could just have him in flashbacks like they establish early on he's he's Mm -hmm. in a flashback up front just you know bring him back that way is doable. the thing is
2: they 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 create very early on the plot that kingsmen are wiped out so all your other supporting characters that you've established are gone except Mm. for mark strong but then you've got the two of them as a double act and they're working fine. What's the problem with that? Mark yeah. Strong becomes the kind of the other figure in this little duo. And mm. Mark Strong is perfectly capable of handling that.
0: Mm. Yeah, Mark yeah. Strong's a very dependable actor. I, I really like Mark Strong and I mm. think he's... You haven't seen Grimsby yet, have you? Well, I was going to say he's done some shite, but I'd say <laughs> this is uh, this is a good effort from Mark Strong. I, I, I really enjoyed him here.
1: Mm. Yeah, likewise. So what
2: what is the plot? Um so Julian Moore establishes the bad guy and she is basically the best drug dealer in the world. Mm. But yeah. she has to live in some shitty rainforest in Bolivia or something. Cambodia. So she, yeah.
1: But, <laughs> not... but oh, she yeah. used
0: to watch She used to watch I Love Lucy so she's had it turned into a kind of 1950s <laughs> ghost town. No,
1: no. She she, when she cites um, Happy Days, Greece and or oh, something else But which I like because it's like she's got this whole 50s thing but it's an 80s interpretation <laughs> of the 50s which I thought was just a, quite like a little detail. They don't do much with it.
2: Julianne Moore it seems I, I suspect she turned up on the set uh, and they gave her the script that day. <laughs> she certainly hadn't given any thought to what she was going to do with the character.
0: Oh, well, I have to say I was very disappointed with the fact that Julianne Moore, to say in the first film, Samuel L. Jackson is really going for broke doing a character. You know, yeah. he's doing an impression of Jonathan Ross, uh, who, <laughs> of course, is...
1: I think he just had a lisp, didn't he? He didn't... Oh, was yeah. it a lisp? I think it was a lisp.
0: Well, it was inspired by Jonathan Ross because, of um, of course, he is Jane Goldman, the writer of these films, along with Matthew Vaughan. Um, Jonathan
1: Ross is Jane Goldman? Jonathan Ross <laughs> is
0: Jane Goldman's husband. Oh. And, uh, of course, has met Samuel L. Jackson on a number of occasions doing, you know, press press on various chat shows and things. So, um, apparently, he did base his villain character on Jonathan Ross, He's dressed like a twat all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's just something he said to wind up Jane Goldman. I I I don't know. Um, But the point is, he was doing a funny voice, and he was you know he was making a real character out of it. And and Julianne Moore here, you know, she's chewing the scenery, she's having fun, and she's a great screen presence. But I kind of wanted more from it. You know, it it felt just like you Mm. say, Julianne Moore with no chance to put any thought into it or do any prep.
1: It feels like they only had her on the set for like three days. Maybe she doesn't really get out of that diner set. She doesn't um, at
2: all. No, she doesn't interact with any other characters until they they kind of they come to her at the end.
1: Yeah, uh, and
2: yeah, it's very telling. And I and I think you lose something there. It's obviously just mm-hmm. presumably because of her filming schedule, or whatever. But I think you lose a connection. In the first film, you know, he goes and with Samuel Jackson, they're having dinner together and stuff. And it, we see that in Bond as well. That interplay between them, the cat and mouse element, is a big part of it. Like, you're mm. losing a personal element of the villain because who cares? Like, what's yeah. going on with her? Yeah. Mm. Plus, what's her motivation? Yeah. She's like a really good business well, person, that, yeah. but nobody knows because it's illegal. So
1: she's annoyed. Yeah. I mean, I I I I like her. She's she's my favorite thing in the film. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll say that. But beyond motivation, like what? What is the
0: concept of her character? Because as we say, when we're first introduced to her, she has her henchman throw this guy in a meat grinder that's set up at the at the side of the fucking deli counter not deli counter, the the diner, diner counter. I don't think they tend to grind up meat to make <laughs> stuff in front of you when you sat there. Maybe they do. But she then turns the the guy's flesh into like a human cheeseburger, and then feeds it to the henchman who's had to go and have a pretty humiliating <laughs> makeover to kind of make him her little pawn and well, that, put that, you know, uh, her mark on him. It,
2: the whole thing's just very that whole scene is to show her power trip kind of thing. She she demands total loyalty and all this sort of thing. It's very... But then it never comes... But that clumsy. never comes back again. Yeah, it's very... And it's just not subtle in any way. It's, it's very cartoon villain. That, mm. That's what it is. You're literally feeding someone into a giant mincer. It's a cartoon. I mean, it's Keith Allen. It's fair <laughs> enough. He deserves it. But it's, it's just a ridiculous situation. And yeah, is it supposed to be funny?
1: I don't know. I think it's dark comedy, at least. There's a weird lack of um, blood whenever
0: people go into that mincer to say this is not a, <laughs> there's a
2: weird lack of clothes and bone in the burger <laughs> yeah yeah
0: yeah <laughs> but but i mean even when you look at the shot of the gears from above there's like barely any blood at all and it's like these are pretty violent films for the most part mm-hmm. so it's weird that they're like clearly pulling their punches on that but i suppose that is them going for a cartoonish Quality, they they know that making it too realistic would make people wince a bit and that's not what they're going for. I I don't know.
1: Mm.
0: Anyway, Julianne Moore is is a very poorly defined villain that we don't know anything about. And she's put some chemical in the world's drug supply, is that right? Yep.
1: All <laughs> the marijuana, all every... the cocaine, all the heroin. Do
0: they do they explain how she's done that? Because, you, know, you know, a lot of most people who you know, a, a lot of weed is just grown by people in their own, like, cupboards.
2: Well, obviously she can only do her supply, but that's she's such a canny businessman that it's getting out all over the world, isn't it?
0: Well, I was going to mm. say, it's it's that's enough to infect basically every character we come across in the film, including <laughs> Thomas Turgus, uh including the princess, Princess Tilde. Uh, talking about cast members, I think this is your classic thing where... Someone gets cast in like a little cameo role, and then they decide to make a sequel, so they just luck their way into a (laughs) much bigger role than they would (laughs) ever get under normal circumstances. Uh, uh, You know, nothing against Hannah Alstrom, but uh, I don't know. I can't say there's much going on in the way of chemistry, charisma, or (laughs) yeah, can we talk about
2: character arc? So He's. We set up at the beginning, he, you know, he's falling in love with the princess because she let him fuck her up the arse. They're living together. He's worried about fitting in with her parents because they're royalty and so it's uber posh. She's totally fine hanging out with Thomas Tagus and company. She, she's like totally chill, like she's cool with the chavs. Uh, she, well, she obviously <laughs> likes a bit rough. We, so we have this whole thing where they go to dinner with her parents and the dad decides the The test of him would be to like to test his knowledge of global economics,
0: yeah, classical literature, that sort of thing. Yeah, (laughs) but but they do they do a kind of sitcom setup where he, I mean, it is it is your classic nineteen seventies sitcom farce. In fact, he has an earbud in his ear with someone feeding him like information about everything, looking it up online, and then of course his mate goes into his office and finds like a bomb so he's he's there being like oh
2: what the fuck are you
0: doing mate to to his friends but in For the middle someone of this. who
2: is a spy and you know has to be able to lie and and sort of finagle his way out of situations he doesn't handle that very well does he
0: <laughs> he really doesn't because the thing to do like if you even if you can't think of anything you should be able to think of oh, i'm dreadfully sorry i'm about to shit myself and you run out <laughs> of the room. <laughs> <laughs> but you just you just go. I'm so sorry. Uh, I just need to get some air. I'll, I'll be back in a second and and rush off and go, mate. What are you doing? Get out. That's a bomb. It's really important. You put that down. I'll I'll show you all this stuff when I get back. But just for the time being, don't touch anything because it might kill you. I'm not kidding. You know. And hmm. then you
2: go back. And Why don't he put a lock on that room? Yeah. What <laughs> he doing? So what? Oh yeah. So the the princess story. She oh, then God, right. So then he basically in the course of his duty. You know, for Queen and Country, he has to shag somebody. It's a well-established protocol in the world of Bond. We're we're happy with it. Mm. And then he starts feeling guilty about it, and he's like, rings her up, says, "Sorry, love, I'm gonna have to cheat on you. Sorry about that." She gets pissed off about it, and mm. then that's the whole thing. Because then he's like, then he half does it, but not really. But then he only does the thing he needed to do anyway. He didn't have to shag her. He only had to stick his. Oh, and also.
0: And also yeah, but at that point she won't even take his calls and hear him go, look, all I did was snog her and put my finger up a her. Vagina. Um you know what the the point that made me question to what extent Matthew Vaughn is self-aware and is making a comedy and the the extent to which he doesn't know what he's
2: doing. When she says, Do you want to piss on me? <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> no, it was specifically the point where we follow Taryn Edgerton's finger with this sort of oh, yeah. device on it. <laughs> And the camera kind of swooshes up between her legs, fades to black, and then we cut to a CGI rendering of inside her pelvic walls. <laughs> inside her like I mean what what would you call that? A cervix? Uh, is that what that is? Yeah. It, <laughs> as this little device is floating up. It, that was when I was like, right, what what is this? Because this
2: <laughs> this is Does it actually beep like a submarine sonar? Is that was that just in my imagination? <laughs> This is something that feels like it should be in
0: Crank Three, you know, uh, <laughs> not a not a mainstream. <laughs> that's what I want, Kingsman film. That that whole sequence was bizarre, but again, it's like I say, that's something you do in Kingsman Five once mm. you've established that. To do the whole James Bond deconstruction thing, we have to establish that Eggsy is you know out and about getting laid all the time and 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 then there are some actual interesting things to explore there if he is james bond and he's being asked to give that up for you know this woman he cares about that's interesting but instead what we get is as far as we know she's the first woman he's ever slept with is that right does he sleep with anyone else in the first kingsman uh, no for all we know he lost his virginity to her and he mm. doesn't you <sighs> know have any confidence and doesn't dare step outside of his comfort zone and and i mean obviously the implication is there but it just doesn't play the way Mm -hmm. it's clearly supposed to and and i think that's a an odd decision on on the part of the filmmakers
2: really i was thinking that you know he's like oh he's gonna have to shag this girl but he's got to lie to her he's got to you know like make her think that he actually wants her and then and i thought oh in this day and age you can't really do that it's too Mm. creepy it's too sexual assaulty so they've come up with a plot device so that he doesn't have to do it, and he can kind of walk away without without looking like too kind of SJW kind of yeah. feel to it. No, he still does it. <laughs> it just doesn't. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, because the princess agrees to it. it so long as he proposes marriage to her. Yeah, she, she what was, the fuck is yeah. that? <laughs> that was really strange.
0: That pissed me off, and, and I could tell that, like, I could feel Alan seething as I watched <laughs> it. Because, yeah, the notion that, well, I don't really want you sleeping with other people, but if we're married, it's all right, because that means stability. Does it? <laughs> yeah. You know, d- like, does it? It. That's not... Oh, this weird, antiquated view of fucking marriage. I'm s- fucking sick of it. I hate marriage. <laughs> Marriage is is absolute meaningless fucking twaddle. It's a piece of paper. There's arguably some minor tax reasons in favour of doing it, but, you know, it's certainly... There's nothing to stop you breaking up with someone Mm. if you're married to them, unless you're, like, a a billionaire and they're not, in which case there might be some financial implications. But for (laughs) the average person person on the street i i can't imagine any of that's coming into play between uh eggsy and the princess
2: or or if it
0: is it's kind of going the other way you know
2: well yeah he's obviously the one who's going to be marrying into wealth mm. so you know he needs to log that shit down you know he, he can <laughs> once he's in like yeah just try and divorce me i'll i'll take you from. <laughs> off
0: <laughs> I imagine Eggsy's paid very well for being a Kingsman. I bet it's a very high-paying job.
1: Oh, I don't know. Secret Service people don't get paid that well. Uh, well, it
0: might. Well, yeah, maybe it's
1: all benefits. It's all the benefits you've got to kind of, you know... Oh,
0: but saying that, actually... All, they, your, all your expenses and things. They
1: are a private uh, company, aren't they? They're not, like, government-sanctioned or anything, so... Exactly, exactly. And they're,
0: they're clearly... Um, they're all about, you know
1: having money for the better things and blah 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 yeah yeah
0: it's it's murder to pass the job interview <laughs> literally in some cases <laughs> oh. you've got to murder a dog you've got to make sure you're not murdered there's all sorts of murder <laughs> i'd expect that Exley's on a good like minimum minimum 60 grand a year i would say although to be honest maybe they've just plucked this uh working class oik up knowing they can give him like 18 grand and I think that's a jackpot <laughs> i imagine a lot will be on expenses yeah, yeah but that's what i mean i'm i reckon he's on 60 grand a year but he gets about a million in expenses <laughs> with all those with all those suits and private jet use i don't think he owns that, that house
2: either i think it's just that's a, like a company
0: house yeah. he's allowed to live there while he's working yeah and there. the cars and things that's it i think they really take care of you
1: that's Colin Firth's character's house from the the last one.
2: Well, exactly. He just passed it on. It's a company house. Right, yeah. So if he if he quits, <laughs> he has to give it up.
1: So they introduce this whole marriage thing and it I I it seems to exist purely to sort of give us a happy ending, I guess, and to show that Exy's relationship with the princess is escalating. Yeah. Um it doesn't really have much bearing on where the story goes <sighs> next.
0: I cannot remember the last time I watched the film and I so blatantly saw the pieces being laid out in the script. When they introduced that, I was like, right, so that's yeah, so he's gonna... He's going to not quite sleep with her, but they're going to break up over it. Then she's going to find out that actually he does love her after all. He's going to propose after all, and they're going to mm. get married at the end. Okay. I, I see what this is.
1: Um, <laughs> Shall we talk about... We, we haven't really talked about the... Well, the major selling point of the film, actually, which is the whole idea of the American Kingsman, the Statesman, and we get introduced mm. to a whole new cast of characters through that device, because obviously the Kingsman, now led by Michael Gambon, for <laughs> bizarre our small part uh but they're all offed and so eggsy and mark strong have to go over to america to join up with the the team over there led by jeff bridges
0: Mm. yeah i so we're introduced to a new set of cast members like you say jeff bridges doing a very um jeff bridges role (laughs) i love jeff bridges but there was just something about what he was doing here that i didn't like and i don't know what it was Mm. It, it was like it was like his mouth. It's like it felt like he'd just been to the dentist, <laughs> and then they'd filmed his scenes, and his mouth was like paralyzed still with some anaesthetic.
1: I was wondering if it was because he didn't have his beard in this one, and I'm used to him with sort of a bit more <laughs> that of a. That beard. Might be it,
0: a very weak jaw without his beard. I yeah. think that
2: is it, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How amazing uh, would it have been if they'd had Jeff Bridges doing that, but dressed as colonel sanders <laughs>
1: <laughs> i would actually have
0: loved that he practically was <laughs> <laughs> they have channing tatum picking up the uh the playing men with stripper names thing from magic mike uh playing a guy called tequila
1: well yeah all the american agents are named after uh all types of alcohol like um yeah that
0: felt so clunky. And... It doesn't
1: even gel with like, because the Kingsmen are, it's all like King Arthur and Lancelot and all that yeah. kind of stuff. It makes no sense. I'd, I'd be fine if the Kingsmen were named after like Taylors or something or whatever. Yeah, but it's,
0: it's a James Bond trope, isn't it? Because James Bond is a code name, well established <laughs> so, um... <laughs> In this state, they're play- they're paying homage to James Bond. They're like, look, we've got everyone's got code names. Mm. You're not going to use your real name if you're doing undercover espionage. That's just fucking stupid. <laughs> so. Uh... But I agree. It just it just doesn't it, it felt like they should all be named after like famous whiskey distilleries. Yeah. Not just, you know,
2: types of alcohol. Yeah, but then they'd all be called Glen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that would be fine. <laughs>
2: then, then, then yeah, Jeff Bridges called like Jack Daniel's or whatever.
1: Anyway, um yeah, so Channing Tatum's here in a bizarrely small part as well. I do get the feeling that someone just put word out to casting agents like who's got a couple of days free and we will just figure out a way to put them in so that they can be on the poster because Julianne Moore, Jeff Bridges, Channing Tatum
2: we will write the script around you we don't care about the story or structure.
0: It felt like they did that it felt like who's free and wants to be set up for Kingsman 3 Mm. when we'll we'll make sure we've got funding in place to secure
1: you properly. (laughs) Like Halle Berry's here as well uh, sort of playing the The American Merlin role It felt like the script was probably written with Channing Tatum
0: playing a guy who it turned out was the villain Mm. and that was the way it worked but instead he's playing a guy who's a good guy but then there's another guy who's basically the same character kind of stocky thick with two C's cowboy. Yeah
2: definitely that was was written as one character (laughs) and then it's just like Channing Tatum (laughs) can't do the whole thing Pedro Pascal who? You know, he was in Game of Thrones. Uh, whatever, is he available? <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can he
2: yeah. grow a moustache? Because that whole bit doesn't quite work. Like, if you had Channing Tatum in those scenes where they got a Glastonbury, it makes more sense because otherwise it's just like yeah. this 50-year-old man trying to pick up this 20-year-old girl <laughs> uh, and it doesn't quite play, even in the world of They Game do
0: Bomb. get a joke out of you know, with her immediately rejecting yeah. it for being too old. I agree, it would have made far more sense if it was Channing Tatum trying it on with her. And...
1: Well, that whole sort of weird tangent at Glastonbury felt very strange and out of place in the film. I mean, first of all, I don't think they're actually filming at Glastonbury. It looks like just a <laughs> field somewhere where they put a tent and a bar. <laughs> so you don't get. You know, I, I would have assumed that the novelty of going there would have been to film like at an actual Glastonbury festival and maybe do some stuff. Yeah. But they-, they don't. So so it's just really strange.
0: Well, I, I think what probably happened was um, they they probably thought, well, we need to have a scene, a seduction scene, James Bond style. <laughs> oh, but that's going to be a bit icky and, and you know, that's not going to play well in the current climate and things have changed. Well... What about if, uh, you know, it's a music festival and therefore it's believable that she's just, like, off her tits and gagging for it and initiating the whole thing? And I think it was a very half-harmed... My-, my guess is it's a very, kind of, half-arsed <laughs> attempt at writing around those things. It doesn't really...
2: Yeah, what, what happens at Glasto stays at Glasto? She's in the mood. Um, they they could make more of an effort. When Bond seduces a lady, it, it feels believable, usually. Uh, in some, mm. some, sometimes, okay, just it's pretty rough. But for the most part, it's like okay, it's a cool, suave guy in a cool, suave environment. But like this, they he just wanders up. He's like, all right, love.
0: I really liked the <laughs> fact that they they did your classic, you know, wingman thing of have the guy go in as a kind of decoy, and then the other guy can come in and kind of snipe him down. Yeah. That's obviously not the intention of the characters at the time, but. I didn't buy. They were obviously going for a kind of eggsy's young and hip and he's one of the utes and she's responding to that vibe. But it just didn't play because I just don't. Maybe I'm completely wrong here, but I don't buy that that character, as played by Poppy, would interact with this guy who talks like Ali G <laughs> and who's dressed in like a fucking spandex. Tracksuit, whatever it was he was in it just didn't i mean maybe that's the appeal of glasto i don't know but it it just seemed to me like maybe this is where eggsy has to put
2: on a bit of that suave bond charm and the best thing he would have been if he's just doing like he goes oh i'll just do an impression of that charlie guy and then he's like going like, oh hi darling how's it going <laughs> exactly exactly you're a libra <laughs>
0: Or they write something into the script where do they establish they've broken up or something, or they're they're on you know thin ice and something. she's looking. Well, he's for... traveling
2: to Cambodia all the time to pick up a new <laughs> robot arm.
0: So they if they write something in like you know she's looking for a specific reason to get back at him for something. Oh, it's you, the the rival recruit from that job he went up for. <laughs> I know what'll piss him off. The whole film just... It, it just doesn't quite... None of it quite works, does it? Mm. We I think we've already established it at this point, but it's worth noting that Julianne Moore, supervillain, took advantage of the the confusion of the previous film where Samuel L. Jackson had kidnapped a load of celebrities um, <laughs> or had lured them onto his island or whatever the hell it was in order to kidnap Elton John, which is weird because... He's not even part of the nineteen fifties nostalgia. I guess I guess he was kind of doing fifties inspired music in the eighties. Is that?
1: I'm guessing that's what they're going for because he he was sort of like a classic. You know, he he grew up on rock and roll and stuff, and he liked that kind mm. of fifties sound and was very inspired by it. So I'm guessing that's what they're going for. I'm Cliff pretty. Sh- sh- yeah, <laughs> and like
0: the big bopper was dead. It would have
1: made more sense to go
0: for Buddy Holly or something, but they're they're all but dead. But
1: this is Elton John is probably mates with Matthew Vaughan I mean, certainly they went on to make the Elton John film, and Taron Egerton obviously starred as Elton John. So again, I'm just I'm just assuming that oh yeah, let's just have Elton in it because it's funny, and uh, I'm sure that they talked. It is. About. We we've uh. we learned
0: that uh, lesson back when the Country Bears came out <laughs> uh, in 2003 <laughs> or whatever it was. Which just has gratuitous uh, Elton John
2: cameo sequences for no reason. <laughs> I think my initial response is, this is stupid, it's shit. Mm-hmm. But I kind of, I I like that they keep coming back to it and they incorporate him into the story in quite a nice way. Like into how the action unfolds and stuff. I think it might have worked better if Elton John could act in any way. That would be yeah, helpful.
0: Yeah, that was the problem for me. Yeah. Um, but I think I in like theory it a kind it of works. running gag. Yeah. And-
2: and then, but they, it's not just coming back to it, they make it work with the dog robot thing, like it, they make a, a mm. thing of it.
0: I think it would have been funnier like, yeah, number one if it was someone who could act. Uh, number two if it was someone a bit more... I think Elton John's known for having a, a sense of fun and being willing to do this yeah. sort of thing. And I think it'd be funnier if it was someone a bit stuffier and less known for playing himself in stupid films like the <laughs> country bears <laughs> but i guess they also get a, a great song on the soundtrack out of it but then the problem is there's a the most it, like cringy part of the film is a self-indulgent bending over backwards oh wednesday night's all right oh isn't that song called saturday night's all right for fighting Yes, but today is Wednesday, and I'm going to fight you today. <laughs> but it's the daytime and the song says it's night time. <laughs> well, we're going to ignore that in <laughs> this that discrepancy, because this joke's only got time to
2: address one. I Think he should have picked up a crocodile shaped rock and smashed it <laughs> in the <internet>. head. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that would have been amazing. <laughs> but the- like that joke was that joke was appalling because just have him sing Wednesday night's all right. And then smack the guy and you get the joke. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you yeah. either get the joke, you either know Elton John's catalog well enough to get that, or you don't know it. And therefore you don't want to hear a joke about one of his songs. It, it's And yeah, like you say, if they were going to do it, I felt like they could have lent into it a bit more, you know, gone full Bill Murray and zombie land. Again, there's a lot of zombie land comparisons to be drawn between Kingsman two and, uh, Mm. zombie land what's that about
1: <laughs> <laughs> i do um like elton john being in this i think i think we might have said like on the first film it's a shame that samuel jackson is making a point of going around and re- either recruiting or capturing all of these celebrities but we don't actually see anyone yeah. you know there's like uh, barack They're obama standing from, behind, stand-in from yeah. yeah from behind or whatever but that's about as is far as it goes and um, i like that it sort of makes good on that it's weird um and i like him and again i really i like him and julianne more a lot in this i just wish everything else around them made more sense of them isn't it weird that the the president certainly has all the
0: behaviors of a of a um trump right wing uh conservative president in in this film, Mm. suggesting that the Republican Party did in this universe win the election after Obama was assassinated. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, it, it just, I think generally an assassination does a lot for your political party, in terms of people tend to be more on your side because it's like,
1: well, yes, oh but- fuck,
0: that's not on that you got assassinated. But then I suppose that it would come out that Obama was trying to run yeah. off to some little island, and
1: well, no, he was in he was in his bunker, his head exploded because he. Uh, quite happily took the Samuel L. Jackson Mm, he was in mm. on the whole sort of kill the plebs sort of thing but then it's weird that it's not just Donald Trump but I do think it is interesting and it probably speaks to Matthew Vaughn's whole libertarian sort of uh, leaning I guess that we had the democratic president there and here we are clearly a republican president um, and both are sort of treated uh, with a similar level of disdain in the first film it's blatantly meant to be Obama
0: whereas in this film it's just generic white guy. Yeah. And and I guess you know it it would be a distraction to have Donald Trump or a Donald Trump impersonator in the film. But it was a distraction to have a guy who looks like Obama in the first film. Like mm. do you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. I and and I don't think to be honest, I don't think it, it would be remotely beyond the world of this film to have one of those really good Donald Trump impersonators. Doing their, you know, get Alec Baldwin in, <laughs> get the guy who did it in Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt in. Mm. It would have been to f- be, it would have been quite funny, I think, to have <laughs> him be like, "We just won the war on drugs," and do the exact same scenes. But <laughs> we got Emily Watson in these scenes,
2: bizarrely, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, a really what good that? actress. What that, that? Yeah, what's she? Do- what's happened to her career then?
1: <laughs> well, it's-, it's gone strength to strength. She did Chernobyl like last year, really, really good, good in happens. that. Yeah. I think she's a phenomenal actress, uh, but she uh, I don't know why she's here. Uh, she has, like, two scenes, and then she's in probably the worst bit of CG in the entire thing when she's led into a cage <laughs> in a stadium and, like, drones are flying around. Oh, it's terrible. That was another bit when I thought, what is,
0: like, at what level is this being picked? Because that, <laughs> yeah. that struck me, like, this is like a Justin Roiland cartoon. This is, like, the sort of insane shit I would want to put in a film but i wouldn't be able to figure out a way to make it make sense in a way <laughs> that was remotely viable and i would never get around to actually writing it down because it was too absurd but what because it, it's it just it's just a load of people in little cages being stacked like lego bricks and <laughs> dancing like mad in each
2: but thing. i don't what, just... what is the actual like, on a practical level why are they doing that <laughs> like the government or whatever why, why are they stacking them in cages individual cages like that Like, what's well the it's
0: going to be like? some kind of quarantine but they've forgotten that they've all taken drugs it's not like an infectious disease they're dealing yeah. with, they're not zombies so yeah just put them in a fucking jail cell if you're worried about them dancing on the streets causing too much chaos yeah I think it's supposed to show the scale of the situation, how many people are affected by what's going co-
2: What? How How many are there? 2,000? Because if Probably you're just going to put them in a fu- football stadium, why don't you put them in the seats? Because that's what seats are there. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're dancing. <laughs> well, let them dance on the pitch instead of building cages on them? <laughs> I don't know. What bothered me
1: is that <laughs> at the end, when the antidote is being uh, distributed and it's this really... well, Okay, we need to get it out there quick. How how do we write this? Oh, yes, they're all attached to drones all around the world. And at the press of a button, they'll all be released. These still must be administered, sort of like someone needs to pour the antidote down someone's <laughs> mouth sort of thing. And someone is presumably doing that. Because the next time we see Emily Watson, someone's, like, taken the cage down. And presumably these are all, like... Government, because yeah, lest we forget, or... if, if you haven't seen the film in a while or you haven't
0: seen it, stage two of this uh, infection from taking tainted drugs is you dance uncontrollably and presumably are not in a you know, you're also like insane and completely delirious and can't speak, so you're presumably not in a position of being able to administer medication both physically and mentally. Stage three is full on muscular paralysis. Where you absolutely would not be able to administer medication to yourself. So yeah, it, it's stupid.
2: Hmm. Well,
1: that's why all the lonely people die.
0: <laughs> Stage four is your eyes explode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and again, like everyone, like uh, Thomas Turgoose and um, Eggsy's other mate. Um, at the end, he's like pouring the thing down. Is how did he get it? Like where did these? J-? It's just the really knocked on the door. <laughs> I said I heard you've got a
2: you've got a paralysis in your house.
1: Look, yeah. Pizza
0: Hut can. Deliver pizzas with drones in some country now, so you know. But how
1: would they know? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's all just really <laughs> contrived nonsense just to sort of, you know, um, yeah. skirt over any kind of uh, yeah, logistics.
2: Yeah, they should have shown, uh, like, the princesses, like, you know, someone rushing it on a motorbike straight to their home. And then Thomas Tegusa's mate is in a big queue at the local pharmacy. They're all waiting to get it. And the person behind him is like tapping on the shoulder, "Excuse me, I've got three kids. that are all take drugs, and they're going to die. Can I go ahead of you, please? They're really, they're, they're really bad."
0: And there's also people picketing outside the queues, uh, protesting so the for their right die. to die of tainted. <laughs> no, protesting their their right to die of tainted drugs and not be made to take a vaccine. <laughs> even though it's um, an optional thing at that point that no one's been talking about forcing them to take anyway. (laughs) It it felt very similar to the first film's evil plan of uh, everyone. You know, the first one is everyone uses a mobile phone that emits a signal that makes them go into rage zombie mode. And this one is everyone, it turns out, takes drugs and therefore is infected with blue veins that
1: make you dance like a madman and then die so am i am i very just uncool and kind of out of loops because this film certainly makes out like pretty much everyone does some kind of recreational drug um and presumably they do it or everyone does it regularly because everyone's getting ill at the same time um (laughs) <laughs>
2: Who's everyone though? All we see is we've got Thomas well, Tugges huffing Turgos. on a crack pipe, and that's sort of in keeping with their character. Um, the princess, yeah, the
0: princess. I I totally buy all the royals, yeah. all the upper class people in the world are you know shooting up ketamine line of coke and,
2: and, all, yeah. Yeah. Um, and who Channing else? Channing Tatum. Some people, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's Obviously, a party boy.
0: Emily Watson. Yeah, she's a politician at the highest level, doing eighty-hour weeks. That's. Yeah. Uh, and oh, no. uh, people at people at Glasgow as well, who of course, are... lots of people at Glasgow. Well, yeah, yeah, but they are. You know, you go around the festival, and there are people just on the floor within like the first <laughs> hour. I I think we'd probably be safe. The three of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but that that's what this film was missing, wasn't it? It was the shot of three fucking knobheads sat in their bedroom (laughs) on a zoom call (laughs) while everyone else is outside like dancing
2: (laughs) it's so strange because it doesn't make any real stance on a kind of anti-drug or pro-drug rhetoric does it i mean it kind of anything it's sort of saying like hey it's not that bad you know doing drugs is all right
0: it dabbles into making a point about alcohol being every bit as bad a drug and something that's inexplicably
2: does it though because we see we see them drinking very heavily throughout i mean i'm <laughs> they do drink a lot even when they're just about to go to work like they, they knock one back just to make sure
1: and then like at the end
2: isn't it with channing tatum they say oh just stick to the booze will you mate yeah i think it's a very pro-alcohol film
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Well, they had a tie in alcohol. Oh really? Is that a real alcohol? You could get a Kingsman whiskey for a while. You probably still can. When you say you could, Calvin. Well, well, I don't know. I don't know. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I don't know actually how much um, it went for. Let me see if have they ever done a Bond alcohol. Well, I mean, Bond has a lot of...
0: Doesn't Bond drink Heineken or some shit He does. (laughs) Yeah, so that's all. You just need to grab a can of Heineken. (laughs) Oh, God. I mean, come Heineken. (laughs) I mean, that is selling out. James Bond, who's obsessed with, like, having proper, the best things in life, and then he's drinking a fucking can of Heineken. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not a tin of Foster's, but...
2: Yeah, but it's just, it's whatever, whoever plays. It's like when in the when it was Timothy Dalton, he was driving a Ford Capri, because it was like, that was
1: who was paying.
0: Mm-hmm. We're saying Bond has no no morals and scruples. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't find a price for this whiskey, but it's 1991 vintage, this one that I'm looking at, so it is presumably Ooh. quite expensive if that's the vintage. Yeah. Um,
2: they were really thinking ahead with this merchandise. <laughs>
0: They they couldn't get any tie-in cocaine manufacturers to like agree to <laughs> make the Kingsman official cocaine. Then,
1: mm. so
0: they came, they went harsh on them. I I don't know. I I feel like there is a bit of a sentiment from the the fact that Julianne Moore is the villain and and yeah. she's sort of like she makes the point of look what I do is no worse than what you do, and you've just legalised it. But then I guess Mm -hmm. they never really go that extra mile of making her a sympathetic villain. They kind of give her a speech that you kind of think, like, yeah, that's fair enough. But then (laughs) she has people being cooked into
1: burgers. Emily Watson plays that part in a scene Mm. with the president where she's like, yeah, talk to functioning professionals and whatnot.
0: I mean, look, I I feel like I've been incredibly negative about this film mm-hmm. because it is a total fucking clusterfuck and messy and all that stuff. I, I have to say I I would struggle to make a big distinction in quality terms between this and the first one.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um well, I disagree.
2: I think I think this is <laughs> this is all the worst elements of the first film ramped up, which is why I think it's just Matthew Vaughn let off the leash.
0: See, I I think I like that more. I like seeing an auteur, which is what I think, it. you know, I think Matthew Vaughn is very much an auteur filmmaker. I like seeing an auteur let off the leash and just doing whatever the fuck they want, to be honest. I think I find that more interesting than seeing them try to fit into something commercially viable, awkwardly. So I I don't know I I'm, I'm just looking here and Alan you gave this film a three out of ten mm-hmm. back in our review of the year 2017 oh, episode episode 83 mm. uh, of the podcast if anyone wants to go back and listen to that Calvin you gave it a seven out of ten mm. um, and I'm I'm definitely coming down on the more positive Calvin side of things with this one mm. although Calvin if you rewatch the first one and decided you don't like it nearly as much has that tainted your opinion of this one as well, well
1: or I think in my previous in, in the previous uh, review we did of this I think I talked about preferring this one to the first one I think I still do bizarrely uh and I think I I get that I do get that I uh, yeah I get that I don't really know why um but I think it's more fun. I, I think the first film is,
0: like I say, it's Matthew Vaughan trying to fit into something that adheres to what we think of being a, an acceptable film to release in cinemas for the masses. <laughs> Whereas this film is just, it, it's not remotely concerned with how things are gonna go down with a mainstream audience. It's just throwing robot dogs at the screen and yeah. dancing plagues. It's just, it's so much more bizarre and unhinged and i think that can if you're attuned in a certain way make for a more enjoyable experience i i totally get that i think
1: uh, i think Saul did sum it up quite well in articulating why i might like i don't like it but i think i enjoy it it's weird mm. uh there's yeah. so much really stupid maybe this is like how you feel when we watch some of the bond films well no actually you don't enjoy it um <laughs> <laughs> uh um, but yeah, I guess I enjoyed the viewing experience, and I really like Julian Moore In it, I, I quite like Elton John. Some of the actions, all right, if cartoony and video gamey, it's weird political mixed messages from Matthew Vaughn, as is his style. Uh, I think I'm gonna give it a six, which I guess is downgrading. Uh, yeah, it's a step down. Fair.
2: Yeah, I I think given. Given what they've got here—the ingredients, the people involved, the money—I don't think they could possibly have made a worse film. I think this is as bad <laughs> as it possibly could have been, and I do appreciate oh, that's some of that. Not true at all. Some of that is really kind of—I guess it just pushes my buttons in a in a negative way. It kind of has all the elements I don't like about action sequences, about just don't give a toss character stuff. So, given like what they had, and you know, like I said, the first one was fine. Uh, I think a three is, is is fair, I think I'll stick with that.
1: Hmm.
0: okay, well, I never thought I'd be in this position, but I mean, look i I um, I didn't watch this film when it came out. I only watched it yesterday i I wasn't that enamored with the first film, and i I think people liking it as much as it as they did perhaps even put me off it a bit. so i I was in no rush to get round to watching the second one. And I kind of forgot it was there, and then at a certain point I knew that we'd probably be covering it on this podcast, so I just saved it. And I sat down to watch it yesterday, and and I don't know, it just I wasn't expecting to enjoy it, I think, and I did. I really enjoyed it, I thought it was really good fun. Basically everything I got out of the first film, but with the weird political undertones, perhaps... Um, lessened a bit, you know? I I felt like some of the sharper corners had been sanded down, so to speak. Just, you know, perhaps not intentionally, but they weren't dealing with a a working-class kid being plucked off the streets and things like that. So it was just inherently playing in a safer sandpit. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I had a really good time enjo- uh, watching it. I, I'd struggle to make any massive distinction between this and the first film in terms of quality. I, I think, obviously, there are some messy elements that we've gone into, but on the whole, I, I had a good time watching it. I gave it a 7 out of 10, same as the first one.
1: Hmm. Wow. See, I'd probably downgrade the first one to a five now. No. I think Matthew
2: Vaughn might be my least favourite director working at the moment. You say that about a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. And I think really on a, kind of on a personal level, I think he makes things, whether he makes them well or not, I think he makes things that I don't like. The, the, his style, I don't like, regardless of any kind of real mm. talent. You know what I mean?
1: I think that uh, I, I think he did one of the best X Men films with First Class, and I, I I need to go back and watch Kickass mm. and Stardust. I remember really liking Stardust.
0: I must say, when I when I last watched uh, Kickass, which to be fair was about eight years ago now, with Alan in the room, which probably <laughs> wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I did feel like oh the. Uh, that this has really lost its sheen. I'm really not getting what I got out of this the first time round. Yeah, I feel didn't hold up at all. Yeah, I feel. But when we uh, when we went back to X Men First Class for rx-men podcast episode a while back i i thought it did stand up remarkably well and i really enjoyed it so
1: but i guess that's going to be him sort of with like execs over his shoulder on the set and stuff and like right we've locked off this script you're doing this script and you know it's probably him at his most tethered i guess um but now he seems to have pretty much dedicated himself solely to kingsman considering that the King's Man is also him. Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah, and he's and he's talking about it setting up Kingsman 3, and yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. To say he didn't even bother directing Kick-Ass 2. Yeah. So he's not had a real interest in franchise filmmaking. He didn't come back for the X-Men sequel after First Class, though that might be because the execs wanted Brian Singer back instead of him. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, it's, it's very weird that this is the franchise he's set his heart on Mm. but it does feel a bit like a guy who had a few good ideas and he's done them all he's done all three ideas and so now he's just got to stick on that last idea and ride it out like James Cameron with Avatar Mm. man of great ideas but he did them all alright, well, I'll just make ten more of these well, until it, I die. It but... is
1: probably sort of like... He is probably a given so much freedom because he's writing, producing, directing these things and they, they are successes. Mm. Uh, So he probably does just have a lot of freedom and I guess it's probably more... Mm. Maybe it's more exciting to be doing that than something else where someone's going to, uh, yeah, be giving you notes mm. on the set. But yeah, they've got The King's Man, which is a prequel, which is what we're sort of leading up to, and then mm. there's Kingsman 3... And then they were talking about doing a statesman film as well, where it was going to be oh, all the God. Americans. Because well, we didn't actually really would talk make about. That makes sense,
2: the... but like you just let an American guy direct it and just let him go off in a totally different direction.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, I can't imagine Matthew Vaughn's going to make Statesman. I imagine that would be more of a spin-off with a different mm. creative team. He'd be like a producer on it.
1: We didn't really mention this about the end of the Golden Circle, but it does set up like Channing. T- the ending is Channing Tatum getting out of a taxi in London and walking into the Kingsman shop. I suppose it was implying that Eggsy's walked away from it and... What's his name's gonna be? uh, Channing Tatum's gonna be in that Mm. role, which is really Uh, weird and not something that anyone asked for.
2: Later, if they want to, he's come over on a you know work transfer thing. Well, it's it's. Didn't he look uncomfortable in a suit? Just didn't. It's too bulky. Yeah, (laughs) it's like Daniel Craig. Just doesn't fit in a suit.
0: He's used to wearing suits designed to be ripped off. uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the Velcro was (laughs) popping. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right, I, I have a couple of points to hit now. Uh so that's what I'm gonna do now. This is a complete and utter tangent that's got nothing to do with anything. It's vaguely bond related. But uh we, we received quite a nice email the other day. Uh I would just like to oh. we, we rarely bother uh reading emails out on the show, but I thought I'd make uh an exception here. <laughs> uh on the next record with both of you present. Uh William Fletcher uh sent us an email. Hmm. I, I guess I'll just read that. Out. Hello, Sol or Alan. <laughs> uh, first off so not you, Calvin, yeah. you're left out of
2: this. It's Sol. Sol deals with the emails.
0: <laughs> first off, I just want to say that I have absolutely loved the podcast for the past two years. I, I started listening about Aww. April.
2: That's how you get read out on the show. <laughs> put that in your <laughs>
1: <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I started listening about April 2018. I started off with the Bond episodes because that's what oh, I was interested because that's what interested me. I started listening more and more to the other episodes and I have just enjoyed every episode I've listened to. So thank you very much, William. That's nice of you. That's thank so lovely. You. However, I am also sending this email as I decided to do something interesting. I wanted to know how many tens were given at this point. I then mm-hmm. wanted to know how many ones have been given at this point. <laughs> and he is attached, Alan. You'll like this. He's made two um, pie charts <laughs> laying out uh, every time a 10 out of 10 score and a 1 out of 10 score has been given on this show. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I, I guess we'll have to post these up on on social media at some point after this drops. Okay. Yeah. At this point, 54 10s have been given and 33 1s <gasps> have been given. That's a lot. Yeah. Sol has given the most 10s with 29.
2: Wow, that's over half. Oh. Yeah.
0: Well, do, bear in mind, Alan, you and I are on uh, 200 and something episodes of this show, whereas <laughs> Calvin's on about 150 yeah. or something, so... <laughs> Um, so really, it's between me and you, I think. But yeah, Sol has given the most 10s with 29. Behind Sol is Calvin with 13 10s uh, given, and Alan with 7. <laughs> so even even in spite of, he's still given nearly twice as many 10 out of 10s. I want to know what films these are now. Uh, Darren, Gareth, Howard, and Emily have each given one 10 out of 10. Oh wow! Uh, I'll just keep reading. I was going to see if I should make a game of it, but I can't be asked. It's too hot. <laughs> Sol is also given the most ones with fifteen, okay. so I'm um, I'm obviously the most extreme, <laughs> the most emotional out of the two. Of us. You're more set in the middle. Uh, Alan is given the second most with ten. Yeah. Okay. So you've you're you know statistically it makes sense now.
2: They're all Bond films though.
0: <laughs> uh Calvin is given 5. Oh. Scott has given 2. <laughs> that's amazing. How many episodes was Scott on? He's only done about 3 episodes. <laughs> but we did we did cover the Halloween sequels to be fair, one of them. So that's that'll be Halloween 6 and uh one of the other ones I'm guessing.
1: I hated listening to that episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Gareth has, giz- uh, has given one. Uh, this was something interesting I wanted to do, and I thought it would be fun to share. Say hello to Ostend Powers and Japanese Bond for me. <laughs> Thank you for this podcast for the past two years. So thanks again, William. Uh, really nice getting that. Was that. Lovely. And uh, we'll
2: you know this stuff.
0: <laughs> we'll post them up, I guess. Like I say, Excellent. nice one. Yeah. And uh, if if you listening have got uh, any other. Little projects or things or just messages you want to send us. Um,
2: Especially things that say how great we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: the email address is dimreturnspodcast at gmail.com. You can also, of course, reach us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I think if you just search Diminishing.
2: At Dim Returns Pod.
0: If you just search Diminishing Returns Podcast, it'll probably bring us up, but it might bring up another show <laughs> with the same name. <laughs> so be careful. And the other thing. Um is just that I, I, I really wanted to drill into the fact that this is a James Bond comparison. So we're back on Kingsman now, off the okay. tangent. I just wanted to talk about how this relates to James Bond, because I I find James Bond so boring. <laughs> every James every James Bond film I've seen, which is pretty much all of the pre Craig ones at this point. Yeah. They're just boring. They're just like yep yeah and but Kingsman is like so not boring because it's just people doing silly, stupid shit and it's fun and engaging. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I don't know if I'm asking, are these doing James Bond better than Bond or is this very much some of the fallout of the Daniel Craig films being so good that it's kind of leaving room for lesser, imitators in in their wake. I I, I don't know, I I was just interested to hear your guys' thoughts on how this fits into the the Bond franchise, the cinema landscape with James Bond being there. How you think they compare...
1: Well, certainly the first one was uh, done in a response, and uh, Matthew Vaughan and Mark Miller have talked about this, was uh, an immediate response to the Daniel Craig Bond films, which are much more down-to-earth and far less silly, or at least started that way, than a lot of the older Bond films. Most of which we've seen, whether or not you find them boring or not, a lot of the concepts in them are quite outrageous and silly, even if they play it a bit straighter for you know Mm. for instance and i think kingsman was a response to that or at least it was a response to what matthew vaughan and mark miller's memories were of like some of the sean connery ones and roger moore and some of the campier elements and i think in their heads they were kind of taking some of those more outrageous ideas and trying to do a modern version of that. At least I think that's what the first one started out as. It didn't quite work, and I think we talked about this because of, like, there are a level of violence that the Bond films would never actually do and um, and these political messages and whatnot. Um... And they're, they're also consciously subverting
0: Bond in certain ways, which is... Mm.
2: You've just reminded me something there, Calvin, and I'm taking us back slightly, which I forgot to mention, is just how much this film enjoys violence, mm. relishes yeah, it. And yeah. it, it actually was left a bit of a... I can't remember if the first film's the same, but it did leave a bad taste The first in my one's mouth. worse. From what It really enjoys violence. like yeah, I, To I the agree, point I where I was like, whoever wrote this could, could probably do with some therapy. I think they might need a bit of help.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's whoever directed it, really, because you can write it and do it in such a way.
2: I guess in the script it just says they have a fight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, mm. I, I completely agree with you. But I think it's far more pronounced in the first film. I, I think the first one left a bad taste in my mouth. I that that church scene in particular, I remember really leaving a bad yeah, taste in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, um, right, yeah. Because it's so viscerally violent. Even though it is kind of heightened and silly, it's shot in quite a brutal, real way in certain regards. Anyway, and the characters are essentially innocent you know i i think the film establishes that they're racist or something before beating the shit out of them but they're you know i i don't know it just this second film i think didn't bother me nearly as much because the violence is all between secret agents who kind of sign up for a certain job and Hmm. know what they're getting into so it's not nearly the same kind of thing Mm. you know it, it's, it's still, it still quite takes
2: a, a a great glee in it you know it's, mm. yeah it's, it, it enjoys it anyway i think you know in terms of its connection with bond is it more of a response to johnny english i think so they've thought <laughs> they've thought well let's do johnny english but uh, seriously <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
0: why would you think so I I mean, right now, basically, I'm I'm interested just because right now I think I have both of these films pegged higher in my mind than any James Bond film I've seen,
1: <sighs> and i, and I I'd, I'd stop
0: I'd stop short of saying they're better films. I think the second Kingsman film is better than ninety-five percent of the James Bond films I've seen. There's there's one or two that I'd probably put above it. But I think I think I'd probably say the first Kingsman's better than any of the James Bond films I've seen. I'd
1: have to rewatch Doctor No and Goldfinger, but all right. Well, that's that. Uh, <laughs> Not impressed. No, you, I mean, we definitely didn't need to end this podcast this way. We were, we were wrapping up. We could have just finished, but no. It could have
2: ended your friendship this way. Uh,
1: I mean, I, I mean, you're. I mean, you are wrong. But where do you think these sit then,
0: when compared again? If you were to, I don't rank know what you mean Bond by where film, do these sit? Uh... If you ranked every Bond film in order, best to worst, mm. and then you put Kingsman in there as if it were a James Bond film. Well, it's it... would it be in the top half, the bottom? But
2: it's not a James Bond film, so you can't judge it on the same level.
1: Yeah, it? it's uh, like I, I can rank the Bond films as a collection on their own. I uh, yeah, comparing them to other films. I mean, it's it's sort of like saying, do you like The Exorcist or Back to the Future more, maybe? <laughs> Back to the Future. Easy. It's funny though. Yeah.
2: It's it's weird how Sol can make these very specific delineations between films. That's why you can make a, a very exact like top one hundred list and stuff like that. <laughs> Whereas I would think like eh, it's not that easy to just directly compare these films. Or a group of see
0: you just it's like look if if you if you add ten types of berry. And a banana on a tasting platter, and you had to go like, right, which one of the, which one of these do I like the most? You're saying like, oh, well, I could figure out which of the berries I liked, but the banana's gonna completely throw everything off. If anything, I'd have an easier time deciding how much I like the banana in comparison to the berries. The berries are all so similar that well, you I... know, it's more nuance and.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, after you've seen like hundreds and thousands of films, it gets a bit more difficult. Uh, well, I, again, I don't really. Yeah, but there's only twenty three Bond films.
2: Yeah, but it's like yeah, but it's like saying what do you like best? Apple, orange, banana. It's like well, sometimes I'm in a banana yeah. kind of mood. Well, I'm never in a banana mood.
0: I'd, I'd probably say apple, orange, but I'd probably do that order if it's I'm using
2: apple, orange, it as banana. an amusing. You know, the comedy device, banana. <laughs> if I'm eating it, probably an orange.
1: No, oh, they You just did it. You just did it. So do that <laughs> for James Bond with Kingsman. <laughs> I mean, this is why I I don't really like rating Bond films out of ten either, because I'm sure that I've probably given Bond films less of a rating than I have the Kingsman films. But I would almost certainly want to oh, you definitely watch are. any Bond film over any Kingsman really? film. Really, certainly even the weakest of the really, Bond films even easily.
0: Yes. You'd rather watch Thunderball uh, than Kingsman.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Wow. That I mean that is weird though. I mean I you're acting like this is weird of me. I think that speaks to something weird about you that you you don't like Thunderball, and yet you'd
1: rather watch it than a film you do quite like, Kingsman Two. Well, I enjoy. Well, th- this is the thing with Kingsman. As I sort of, I, I, I can't, I have difficulty articulating my uh, feelings about it because I do enjoy it. I just don't like it, and I feel it's okay. kind of like Alan said. I feel kind of grubby afterwards. I feel like I've been at a pub and some strange local man has come over and sort yeah. of like ranted at me about his sort of political views for two hours or something.
0: Is this like? Um... Is this like, obviously how much you enjoy something isn't necessarily tied to how good you think it is. We, we just covered Vampire's Kiss on this podcast and I think Alan and I both agree that it's a film we like more than is justified by the quality of the film. Because it's just so inexplicable and bizarre and Nicolas Cage is, uh, you know, peak Cage. So are you kind of getting a degree of that out of, you know, Thunderball to keep going back to that as a
2: bad Bond film.
1: What was the question? I don't fucking know. (laughs) Uh.
2: Anyway, there we go. So, there is a Kingsman 3 coming out that's a direct continuation. Yes. A Kingsman, which is a prequel.
0: Well, well, you say coming out. There is a Kingsman 3 Matthew Vaughn would like to make. I don't think it's being officially greenlit.
1: I believe it was in development at 20th Century Fox before Disney bought it. And then it's sort of like Kingsman was already a ways down the...
0: Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this level of, you know, $100 million (laughs) kind of low-level blockbuster film takes something of a hit in the the coming years. Because they're saying it's going to be the mid-level film that, you know, doesn't get any uh, funding for a while. But I think that might extend up to your blockbusters that go shy of $200 million because they're not quite blockbuster enough. Hmm. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But yeah, Kingsman The King's Man, rather. The uh, prequel set in the olden days is uh,
2: Victorian time. That's
0: the one coming out that we are tying this into. Um, mm. And then supposedly Kingsman 3 and Kingsman 4 and The Statesman and all these other things will follow, but it probably depends on how well The Kingsman does.
2: Just quickly then, A King's Man, who's in it? What's, what's it about? Ray Fines. Uh, Ray Fiennes in it, yeah. Oh,
1: for fuck's sake. Gemma Art- I think it's supposed to be about how the Kingsman started and he's like fighting Rasputin or something. <laughs> um, it's basically Ray finds as the Colin Firth role and then they've got some other young, attractive, probably posh boy to be uh, the young man. What's his name? Harris Dickinson.
2: I'm looking at the thing. Oh, Daniel Brühl. I like him. Gemma Arterton. Aaron Taylor-Johnson.
1: Stanley Tucci.
2: Tom Hollander. Oh, Tom Hollander as um, George V and his cousins. (laughs) That's quite good, I suppose. They famously looked like each other. So this is going to be like, lead up to the First World War then, I guess?
0: I think so. There's presumably going to be a sequence where one of Tom Hollander's characters, Nicholas II or someone, uh, gets dressed up as George V and then George V is like going to bed to brush his teeth, and he looks in the mirror, but it's not a mirror; it's a doorway. <laughs> and the other one stood there, and he has to like mime along, pretending to be his reflection. <laughs> I, ge- I'm not even—I'm genuinely—I'm putting money on there being some <laughs> variation of that in this film. <laughs> Quite
2: possibly. Who, who's making it? Oh, Matthew Vaughn. Okay, yeah. Anything can happen. Yes. yes. Rizifan as Rasputin. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Are they actually going to put this out any time, or is it going to come out in 2021?
1: Yeah. Well, it's still scheduled
0: for September, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's set for a uh, 16th of September UK release.
1: That doesn't feel like that's going to happen.
0: But I, I really... I mean, I know the cinema is currently open, uh, and has been mm. for a couple of weeks, playing classic Warner Brothers movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, Tenet's delayed now, isn't it? Again, so... I think they're coming up with some kind of different strategy of releasing so they can do it in cinemas in places, but also in... And Mulan's just going straight to premium, lowered expectations.
2: I'm ready to quit films. I'm happy to never watch a new film again. I'll just watch stuff that was made before 2020. Um, I'm alright with that. I've got plenty of stuff to catch up with.
0: I think you're pretty much going to get that wish because I don't think the film industry going <laughs> to make many new films for a while. I think there's going to be a
1: bit of a bottleneck of uh, stuff like the next you know, year might be quite busy. And then after that, uh, yeah, cinemas will be turned into flats.
0: Ooh, yeah, I'd love to live in an old uh, an old screen ten at Cineworld. it mm. be great. <laughs> yeah, high ceilings. Yeah, well, uh, well audio-proofed rooms as well, you know, no, no annoying noise <laughs> from your neighbour.
2: That'd be great, wouldn't it be great? Baskin they, Robbins on like, your doorstep. Wouldn't it be great if they were like, we've we got a 15 screen cinema, we're going to turn it into flats, that's 15 flats. <laughs> Excellent. <So> it's, just, <laughs> it's just a big empty room, they take the chairs out, put a double bed in it and a kitchen at one corner.
0: They, they leave, <laughs> they'll have to leave some chairs in, like in a, next to a, a little table with a couple of chairs. Cinema chairs. If they leave the 4D chairs in. That's the
1: flat I want. (laughs) It's a shame that everything's slanted, so you can't, like, rest (laughs) anything down. Because it just goes rolling towards one end of the room. But that'd be
0: great if you could use the projector, watch a big, you know, play your games on there, and on the 4D, (laughs) I'll be up for that. I don't think they'd leave it in. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's not not actually happening, to be fair, so it's... (laughs) Okay, until next time. Thanks, guys. Yeah.
2: Come back next week. See ya. Thank you, William Fletcher, especially. Yes,
0: thank you. Thanks for listening to this Diminishing Returns Time Capsule episode. As I said at the start, we recorded this on the 11th of April 2020, which means that William Fletcher's letter is now actually somewhat outdated, through no fault of his, I should add. Subsequent 10 out of 10 ratings that have been on the show are Night of the Living Dead, which I gave a 10 out of 10. That was, of course, the 1968 original and not one of the awful remakes. 1978's Dawn of the Dead, which I also gave a 10 out of 10 to, and Citizen Kane, which both myself and Calvin gave a 10 out of 10. I'm actually recording this outro in November of 2020, so it's very possible there will be even more 10 out of 10s that have come and gone. But once again, I I can't be bothered recording another of these, I'm sorry. See you next week!